This week on Crime World... There was a Republican police from 1920. I mean, the IRA was effectively trying to run an underground government. And actually, there was a crime wave. 1919-1920, there's a wave of bank robberies, post office robberies, robberies of individuals, robberies of pubs in Dublin and in rural areas as well. So the IRA tried to actually clamp down on that. They, on occasion, solving bank robberies and giving the money back to the banks. Now, I'm Nicola Talent, and you can listen to my podcast, Crime World, wherever you get your podcasts. On the latest episode of Real Health with me, Carl Henry, I'm delighted to be joined by trichologist Claire Fulham, chatting all things hair loss. I remember then going, I'm losing a bit more hair. Like I could see hair everywhere. It was all okay. over my desk oh, wow. and work okay. everywhere. And so I went to my GP. She found five big patches on my scalp, one the size of my fist. So I was like, right, what am I going to do about this? Give me a plan. She just looked me dead in the eye and said, there's nothing you can do. I went on list for dermatologists. She had a cancellation and she very quickly said, yes, you have alopecia areata. As ever available on all podcast platforms. It's been dubbed the gangland trial of the century. And with the verdict imminent in the trial of Jerry the Monk Hutch, the Indo Daily brings you a new three-part special on the Regency shootings. Jerry Hutch, he said, I'm not going to be whore when I grow up. I'm going to rob my way out of the ghetto. As they walked past us then, one of them let off a shot. People running out, screaming, children hiding behind walls. It was just absolute chaos. Featuring Paul Williams, Robin Schiller and Fionnán Sheehan, you can listen wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the Indo Daily, you can follow us on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. After they had their lunch, Michaela wanted to go back to the room she'd brought with her um, biscuits from home. This was her her vice. She didn't drink, you know. She was a, a very devoutly religious young woman. She was a, a school teacher, but her vice was chocolate. Apparently, she had a terrible sweet tooth, and she had said she was going to go back to the room to get a biscuit to have with the tea. She took the key card to the room and she went back to the room to get biscuits and never returned. Twelve years ago, Michaela Macarivi was murdered in her hotel room while on honeymoon in Mauritius. She had married John Macarivi just 12 days earlier. She was such a good girl. And, you know, every father does say that about their daughter, but I can say that without a shadow of a doubt. She was a gem, and we'd always remember her. And what a day she had on her wedding day. She was just radiant, beautiful girl. Two hotel workers went on trial, but were acquitted of the crime. The new investigation, again, is centering on the security guard. He's also the only person who's connected to the crime scene via DNA and that his DNA is on a safe in Michaela and John's room. The Hart and McAreevy families are still searching for justice. I don't think that they'll ever give up hope that they'll get justice for Michaela. They remain convinced that it was the right people, wrong verdict. I'm Tabitha Monaghan and I'm joined by crime correspondent with the Belfast Telegraph, Alison Morris, who went back to Mauritius as part of BBC Northern Ireland's new three-part documentary, Murder in Paradise. Alison, it's 12 years since Michaela Macarivi was murdered while on her honeymoon in Mauritius. She had only been married a week to John Macarivi. Maybe we'll start by remembering how the couple met. Yeah, well, as as anyone who follows GA would know, Michaela was the, the daughter of Mickey Hart, um, and she was constantly by her father's side anytime Tyrone would have played. But the two actually met at university. 
um, and grew quite close then. And I think it was, you know, one of those relationships that had started when they were quite young and had continued on. And they seemed completely devoted to each other, even though she would joke that obviously he paid for dying. Um, and she was clearly a, a Tyrone girl through and through. And what about you, uh, Michaela? Have, have you got a man in your life at the moment? I do. I, I do indeed. Is he interested in football as He's much as you are? He's definitely interested in football. He would, he would have to be now to be any man of mine. Yeah, does he play? <laughs> he does play. I'm not going to say any more now because I get in trouble when I go back. Um, but her, her brother um, said in the, the when he was speaking about John, he said that Michaela found the best in John, and that's still the family's view. You know that they that he was the the best man for the the only girl in the Hart family, and she was closest to her father Mickey as well. There's plenty of interviews that we've heard of the pair of them and her going to all the matches, all the championship matches since she was seven. Yeah, she's. I mean, she says she was a sort of self-proclaimed daddy's girl, and she almost became like the unofficial mascot of the Tyrone team. Now, of all the, you're the only girl in the family. I'm the only girl, yes. And yet you are the most obsessed <laughs> by the football, isn't that Well, so? you know, that's true. I'm a big supporter, obviously, of Daddy and of the team. Um, I'm certainly not what you would call a fair weather supporter, in that Daddy's been managing Tyrone team since 1991, in fact, and I have not missed a single championship game. So it's quite a good record. I was about seven when he started managing the team, and 17 years on, I'm 24, and I still haven't uh, missed one match. Yeah. So. Now, you're, you're loyal to your dad. I mean, there's numerous pictures over there by our father's side celebrating every time that team would have won. Um, it was a very successful team at the time. Maggie Hart was probably one of the most successful managers in Ireland at that time. Um, and she was constantly by his side. She she would have said that the boys were mummy's boys and she was a daddy's girl. And I think that's one of the reasons why this case shocked the nation so much. Everybody knew who she was. Yeah, and I mean, in, in Northern Ireland, the Irish News would be a sort of big GA paper. And the day after the wedding, their wedding picture was actually on the front page of the paper. That's our high profile, you know, a couple that they actually were. This picture of this stunningly beautiful young woman, a very attractive couple in her and her wedding dress, absolutely beaming. And off they went on honeymoon. That was them off to start their new life. They had bought a house, which they they hadn't moved into yet. They were planning to come home and turn that, you know, build a home there. Um, and the first week of their honeymoon was spent in Dubai. And there are pictures of the, the two looking very happy on honeymoon in Dubai. And then the second week was to be spent in Mauritius. They had only checked in to the Legends Hotel on the, the day before Michaela was murdered. They were there less than 24 hours. So they arrived quite late. And then the next morning, they get up and set about then to enjoy the facilities in that hotel. It was an incredibly luxurious um, hotel resort. So John McAravey went off to take there was uh, golf lessons was one of the things that was offered as part of their package. So he went off to do a golf lesson and Michaela sunbathed around the pool before he came back and the two then went to lunch together in one of the restaurants in the, the hotel resort. What do we know about the murder and how things unfolded that day? So they, they had lunch in one of the, the outdoor seating areas and the, the hotel would have several restaurants, but it was the one that was probably closest to their room. So after they had their lunch, Michaela wanted to go back to the room. She'd brought with her um, biscuits from home. And it's actually as part of the, the crime scene pictures, you see a drawer that's full of you know, uh, biscuits, rich tea biscuits, hobnob biscuits. This was her her vice. She didn't drink. You know, she was a, a very devoutly religious young woman. She was a, a school teacher, but her vice was chocolate. Apparently she had a terrible sweet tooth. 
and she had said she was going to go back to the room to get a biscuit to have with the teas. She took the key card to the room and she went back to the room to get biscuits and never returned. John McRaeby sat there some time, you know, he says he sort of played with his phone, took some pictures or whatever. And then when she didn't come back, he was worried about her and went to Jack, was she okay? Um, he went back to the, the room and he knocked the door and there was no answer. And then he went around the side of the room that opened up onto a small patio. He went around and checked those, they were locked as well. He said the curtains were pulled over and he couldn't see in. So then he had to go, which was quite a, quite a distance of a walk, probably about a five minute walk back to the reception of the hotel to ask, could he have a spare key to get into the room to check on her? So they sent a, a bellboy with him who had a, a master key to get into the room. The bellboy opened the door and you could see the bath from the door and, and John describes how he's seen her bobbing in, in the bath and he rushed then to try and get her out of the water. He screamed to the bellboy to go and get help but he says then he knew that she was dead. He actually said that he, he checked her clothing to see had she been sexually assaulted because that was one of the first things come into his head. And then what happened after that point? Who was alerted? How long did it take before police got there? Well, this is part of the part of the documentary and part of what, what we discovered when we went back to Mauritius was that the crime scene, as it was, was just not treated in the way you would imagine it would be in any other jurisdiction. People came to help the hotel manager, several other people, but also some of the people who would later become suspects in the murder tracked in and out of that room. It, for about an hour, that, that room was open to all sorts of people who were coming and going um, and contaminating what was then a, a murder scene. And when the police first arrived, John McAreevy was arrested. He was taken into custody. The first, obviously, um, in those type of killings, you can understand that the person closest to them, the, the husband or partner, usually becomes a main suspect. So he was arrested. But quite quickly, they were able to establish when he had told them what had happened, they were able to establish by speaking to the hotel staff that he'd been sitting at the restaurant for the entire time when they know that Michaela would have been murdered. The police say autopsy results indicate she was strangled and that John McAreevy, who found the body, is not a suspect. The lady was found uh, strangled. The strangulation, she was found dead. The husband himself has found the body inside the room. Maybe somebody was inside the room was was, was trying to steal something. So then they checked the, the key cards into the room. So and they found out that, that another key, a, a master key, which would have been only certain staff would have had access to, had opened that room two minutes before Michaela had returned. So they know that Michaela used her key, but they also know that somebody else shortly before that had entered into her room using a different key. When this happened, you actually flew out to Mauritius a few days after the murder. What did you make of the investigation at the time? Even at that early stage, were there questions around it? Well, I checked into the Legends Hotel expecting to find a crime scene, expecting to find a scene where a young woman had been murdered in what was an incredibly high-profile killing. It was the lead news story on every bulletin back home. But when I arrived, you know, I remember being given hot towels and a cocktail and there were people mingling around and it looked as though nothing had happened at all. And I find that quite strange. So then when I went to look round the, the room where um, 
Michaela had been murdered, there was a, a tiny little bit of yellow police tape and that was it. There was no other signs that anything had happened. It was a very honeymoon destination. There were couples sitting around arm in arm. There was lanterns floating on the pool and it looked perfect. And I thought none of these people even knew. None of the hotel guests appeared to even be aware that anything had happened. I found all that strange because you'd imagine that everyone in that hotel would have had to have been questioned as part of the investigation to see had they seen anything, had they seen anyone coming and going from that area, and yet they weren't. So what happened quite quickly is the police arrested some of the staff at the hotel, and that is then, I suppose, where the story takes a turn. Once they were arrested and charged, there was allegations almost immediately of police brutality during that time in custody. Um, one of the accused, Avanish Trebehun, he later makes a confession, a signed confession implicating Sandeep Manea, who was his supervisor, uh, implicating him on what police then said was a robbery gone wrong. So what the, 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 what the police put forward as an explanation was that they said that there had been a thieving ring, a sort of larceny ring as they called it in the hotel, where staff were stealing money on guests. And this has been going on for quite some time. Um, that they had returned to the room because there was a wallet belonging to John McAreevy that was sitting on a dressing table. And there was visible notes in the wallet that they had returned in order to steal from this wallet. And that Michaela walked in and as she walked in, she seen Avnish Tribune with the wallet in his hand. She started screaming, asking him what he was doing. And Sandy Manet then grabbed her to silence her and put her out his arm around her neck and that's how she ended up dead and then they put her in the bath so this is what the confession that was signed by um, Avanish had said but almost immediately then their defence team started to to pick that apart and they had very able and adequate defence barristers these people appeared in court and including a security guard called Dasa Narayanan appeared in court as well in the end the charges against him would be dropped but you could see when they appeared in court, when Avanish Tribune appeared in court, he was distraught. Um, he was crying. Mauritian speak a sort of French Creole, like a sort of ancient French. Um, he was he was crying and he was shouting out. The magistrate told him several times to be quiet. And I asked a Mauritian journalist who was sitting beside me what he was saying. And he said, you know, they, they beat me, they beat me, they held my head underwater. He was claiming that he had been brutalised and that was in his very first court appearance. And Dustin Narayan and the security guard, when he appeared in court, I was also at that little regional court that was out in the middle of a, a sugar plantation as he appeared in court. And I recognised him because when I, I've seen him in the hotel. He was the security guard. He was very distinctive because he was very tall. Dustin is a big a big hulk of a guy. And I had seen him the day before in the hotel. And yet when he was when he arrived in court after he had been arrested, he was dragging his leg behind him and it was clear he had been injured in some way from the time when I had seen him, the time he appeared in court. So the allegations of police brutality surfaced quite quickly. And that is where you see the mood and the attitude in Mauritius start to slowly change. So when I was there for the, that week, I was there for about 10 days, there was an absolute outpouring of grief and sympathy that this had happened in their island. At that stage, they relied so heavily on tourism their, their main um, source of income for the island was either at that time was tourism and sugar and they were distraught. But when we went back to make the documentary all those years later and you could see that the mood and the attitude in Mauritius started to change and all of a sudden they started to speak about the suspects like victims. 
by the time the trial had ended, there was almost more questions than answers. What do you think the mood was outside of Mauritius here in Ireland, the family? The family were still at that stage confident that they were going to get a conviction. They had been assured um, by the Mauritian authorities that this was an open and shut case, that there was confession, that there's no better evidence than a confession. It was meant to last for three weeks. And the trial went on and on and on and turned out to be the longest trial in, in Mauritian legal history. And it became almost like a circus. There was all sorts of information that was introduced, some of which was completely irrelevant to what happened. At one stage, they actually, um, the, the media were like footage, CCTV footage of a couple having an argument at the reception of the hotel. And it was claimed that that was John and Michaela. And it turns out it wasn't. It was a, a German couple that had absolutely nothing to do with them. And some of them which must have been absolutely distraught and devastating for the family having to sit and listen to because um, some of what they introduced was completely irrelevant, but it was also designed to throw doubt on John's version of events. Um, and so, you know, this was a very grueling process for them. And I guess just the way things were played out in court, it was a very unsavoury experience. Um, I was going out along with family members just to, to see that justice um, for Michaela was going to be served. But um, it was very, very different from that. You know, the defence um, team wanted to kind of paint me as a suspect. It wasn't a nice experience and um, ultimately a um, very unfavourable verdict as well. When the trial was ended, the two men were found not guilty. They went outside and there were sort of jubilant scenes and people celebrating in the street and congratulating them. And John and his family had to be practically given a police escort out of the court because um, there was almost like a bay and mob waiting on them coming out. But also what we have discovered when we went back is that the police investigation left it, that there was nothing else other than the confession so a confession is fine if you have then other corroborating evidence to back it up. As I said, they didn't close off the crime scene. They allowed half the hotel, you know, the amount of people attracted in and out of that, ho that hotel room after Michaela was found. They also, the forensics were terrible. There was no, the wallet is central to this. If you think about the fact that the story is a robbery gone wrong. So Michaela comes back and finds Avanish Tribune holding John McAravey's wallet. That wallet was never fingerprinted, it was never tested for DNA, and in fact, the day, the day after that, it was handed back to John McAreevey. It wasn't even kept um, as a, an exhibit in evidence. What are the family saying these days that you, they did contribute to the documentary? What, what do they make of the whole process? They were very much a part of it and they remain they remain convinced that it was the right people, wrong verdict. They remain convinced that the two people who stood trial um, did, did in fact murder Michaela. One of the things that is the most hardest uh, to endure still to this day is the fact that we know he is responsible for murdering Michaela and to know that they are free and living their lives without being held responsible is a very, very difficult thing to bear. They were found not guilty by a jury and we have to emphasise that they were found not guilty by a jury after a very lengthy trial. At the time, I had so many questions about the behaviour of police at that time, but there was also the sensitivity to the fact that this young woman had just been murdered on her honeymoon and the family were grieving. And I do think that when I think back now, it sort of clouded my journalism and I didn't do as good a job as I could have. So when I was offered the opportunity to go back to the BBC 
and make this documentary that we could put this right and ask the questions that have bothered me about this case for for so long. They didn't question any of the guests at the hotel. They um, didn't take statements from anyone. They allowed people, as you said, to check out without ever speaking to them. The CCTV in the hotel, we were told there was extensive CCTV, but the the, the police wiped that accidentally um, when they were trying to gather. Now, we asked questions about that and they denied that. They also did a reconstruction, which they got John McAreevy, and there are pictures of him. They made him sit at the seat that him and Michaela had sat in having their lunch several days before. Bear in mind, this man's new wife has just been murdered. They got him to sit and they took pictures of that and they took pictures of him standing in the hotel pointing towards the bath where he had found her. Now, none of those pictures bring one bit of evidence or strength to that case and yet you can actually see the trauma in his face in those photographs. You know, a totally broken man and none of that seemed to me to be in any way important or essential to the investigation. So obviously there's massive questions over the evidence that was gathered during the original investigation. But what about new DNA evidence now? Has any of that come to light? No. So the problem is that it wasn't gathered at the time and you can't go back in time and reinvestigate and and, um, take the room apart again because it's now gone. The new investigation, again, is centering on the security guard. So Dustin Narayanan is is a big part of this story. He's a security guard. The charges against him are dropped because the his solicitors saying the level of brutality that was used against him would have been enough to turn any jury off and the police didn't want that introduced when it came to trial. But he was the only person who had access to the hotel's control room and in the control room the master key had been removed that would open the hotel room doors and it was replaced with a dummy key. The dummy key had his DNA on it. He's also the only person who's connected to the crime scene via DNA and that his DNA is on a safe in Michaela and John's room. None of the other two suspects are connected to the room by DNA at all. Now, in terms of double jeopardy, which exists in most places, you can't be tried twice for the same crime. They changed the law on Mauritius that if there's new and compelling evidence, a person can be tried again. But the new evidence in this case, I can't see where it would even come from. Dustin Narayanan's clearly the same problems existed that existed 12 years ago. He was brutalised in police custody and therefore... His witness testimony is always going to, his defence are always going to rely on that in in terms of his defence, even if he then implicated his colleagues. He's not considered to be a reliable person or a person who would make a good state witness. But there's another twist and turn in this story because Raj Sekoy, who was another hotel employee, who was originally charged in connection with Michaela's murder and I think spent something like 70 odd days in police custody before he turned state witness and he gave um, evidence at the trial against his two co-workers. His evidence was pulled apart by the defence who said he couldn't have possibly seen what he's seen standing from the vantage point. The jury were taken back to the hotel. The defence claimed he said he seen the two emerging from the, the hotel room and they looked sweaty and looked like something had happened and he had asked them that. But the, the defence pulled that apart by saying that the place where he was standing doesn't have a line of sight towards the hotel room door. But he took his own life quite recently. Um, we went back, I spoke to his his wife, his now widow. She says that she believed that he was telling the truth at that trial, but that it ruined his life because obviously, as we know, the public opinion in Mauritius changed and he was seen as someone who had given evidence against his, his close friends and his um, own mental health then spiralled after that. So he doesn't, that witness no longer exists. So, I mean, bear in mind, we have a botch police investigation, we have allegations of police brutality, we have, you know, a dead key witness, all of that. 
it seems impossible that you would ever get enough evidence to have a fresh trial. I suppose one of the main interviews as part of the, the documentary is with Sandy Manea, one of the person people who stood trial. So I interviewed him along with his his wife. We spoke to him and I asked him directly. I mean, I asked, did you have anything to do with the Michaela, murder of Michaela McAravey? He answers no and says that it was very sad. I asked him, was he the person who strangled Michaela? And he said he wouldn't kill an aunt. And that was his response to that. Can I ask you just finally, you said with all the mishandling of the evidence, it's going to be really difficult to have a new trial. But the family have continued to fight for justice for the last 12 years for Michaela. What do you think the family hope for now? I don't think that they'll ever give up hope that they'll get justice for Michaela. And um, John McAravey, you know, has handled himself with such dignity throughout all this. He's now remarried and he has children and, uh, you know, the Hart family are very happy for him that he's managed to to have a life. But he says that you don't, you know, it doesn't leave him, it stays with you. You just learn to, to live with it. You learn that your life, you know, you have to, to carry on, but it's not something the trauma of that event will never leave him. I think they they will always campaign for justice for Michaela. But I mean, to be you know, to be brutally honest, is that is that likely to happen? I think it's incredibly unlikely that anyone will ever stand trial again in Mauritius for the the murder of Michaela McRaven. And it, it could quite easily have been different. My thanks to Alison Morris for joining me today. I'm Tabitha Monaghan and today's episode of the Indo Daily was produced by Mary Carroll, researched by Paul Highland, with sound by John Smith. Archive clips from RTE, News Talk, Today FM and Independent.ie. If you enjoyed the Indo Daily, don't forget to like, follow and leave us a review.